Would you please turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 1? 1 Timothy chapter 1, <clears throat> and we'll read that text in just a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 1. While you find that, let me stop and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the privilege again of opening your word. And Lord, we ask you to do the work tonight that only you can do in our hearts. Use your word to speak directly to us. Lord, when this message is done, may each one of us be able to say, Lord, here's where you spoke to my heart, and here's what I want to do in response. May we be looking for that tonight, because we know you want to speak and work in us. May we be open-minded and open-hearted for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Many stories could be told of notable conversions to Christ. I read the story years ago of Mel Trotter, and that might be a familiar name to some of you, but Mel Trotter was a man so addicted to alcohol that when his three-year-old daughter died and they held the funeral in a church building, when everyone else had left, he went to the casket and took the shoes off of his little girl so he could buy himself another drink. God saved Mel Trotter, gloriously converted, and started a rescue mission in Grand Rapids, Michigan, responsible for reaching hundreds, maybe thousands of people for Christ. I have a conversion story. Do you have a conversion story? I got saved at the age of six. <clears throat> I was at Springdale Baptist Church in Boaz, Alabama. That sounds like a real southern town, doesn't it? It is a real southern town. <clears throat> but my dad was a preacher, and he took us to a revival meeting. I was six years old. Ray Duval stood behind the pulpit, and those southern preachers uh, only have two gears. They start out in first, and they go immediately to overdrive. And they spend the rest of the sermon in overdrive. And he got so red-faced, I was afraid he was going to have a heart attack in the pulpit. But he preached a sermon on hell. And I was in the back of the, this section right here with my mom. And when the service was over, I was afraid to go forward. But I left the building, went out the back steps and down the stairs, got in the back seat of my dad's 1965 Volkswagen, put my knees in the floorboard, and made an altar of the back seat. And I asked Jesus to save me. That was a remarkable conversion story, isn't it? You know, every conversion is a remarkable one. Amen. Every conversion is a miracle of the grace of God. And I hope you have a story. Most people would say that the greatest conversion or the most notable conversion of all time was the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor who turned preacher, an antagonist toward God's people who turned apostle of God, a hater of God who became perhaps the most influential Christian of history. And here we are tonight about to read his testimony. He was a murderer who said, as it was referred to a few moments ago, for I could wish that myself were accursed for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Let's read our text here of Paul's testimony. And I want to start in verse 12 and read down through verse 17 if you'll follow along with me. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me, first, Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. 
Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I want you to notice the phrase in the middle of verse 16, and we're going to look at all of these verses again, and we're going to go back in a moment and pick up verse 11. But in the middle of verse 16, he uses this phrase, for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe. Last night we spoke on the mission of God to reveal His glory and extend His grace to every kindred, tribe, and tongue. If that is the mission of God, and we are called to be on mission with God, then we have a choice to choose. We we must choose to give ourselves to the mission. I don't think you would argue this point at all, that there may be no better example, certainly in the Word of God, and maybe not not in all of history, of a person who lived a mission-focused life. So I want to speak to you tonight on this subject, the pattern of a mission-focused life. If you have done any kind of woodworking or crafting or even sometimes in, in computer work, you know what a template is. You take a template, lay it down, and you cut out uh, uh, the product to match the template. I want us to take the testimony of the Apostle Paul tonight, and, and this is a great example of his testimony given several times in the Scripture in different ways, but I want us to take the template of Paul's testimony and lay it upon our life and see if we are living a mission-focused life. And I want to give you six words, very simple, very practical. I want to choose these words right here out of our text, and we need to apply these thoughts and these these truths to ourselves and make sure that we are living a mission-focused life. If we were on mission with God, would our life look like this? Go with me, please, to verse 12. And the first word I want to choose comes from that first phrase, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. The first word I want you to write down, if you're taking notes, is the word gratitude. Gratitude. Paul was keenly aware that Jesus alone was responsible for where he was. It was the Lord Jesus who struck him down on the Damascus Road. It was the Lord Jesus who arrested his attention, changed his life, and turned his life around. It was the Lord Jesus who turned him from being a persecutor of God's people and a destroyer of the church to being an apostle for the Lord Jesus Christ. The best Christians you know are the ones who mostly, uh, are the ones who frequently acknowledge the, 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 the work of God in their lives and in their hearts. Gratitude is the foundation of a mission focused life. It is a foundational attitude for our life. Maybe you've heard the song, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. When I stood condemned to death, he took my place. And Paul was anchored. He was guided by this deep sense of gratitude. It it permeated every area of his life. And you find him often expressing thanks and gratitude to the Lord Jesus. So how do you know if you're living a mission-focused life? I'm suggesting to you tonight that it must be based in this foundation of a grateful heart for what God has done for you. You know, gratitude affects your perspective, doesn't it? I mentioned last night the children of Israel going through the wilderness and how they complained all the time. And you know, a person who complains all the time really just has a perspective problem, don't they? Which is a result of a lack of gratitude. Why should I have to go through this? Why isn't this a better situation for me? Gratitude affects your perspective. It affects your personality. We all know people 
now not us, it wouldn't be us, but we all know people whose personalities are kind of sharp and, and biting and sometimes rude. And gratitude, or lack thereof, affects others' perception of you. Have you ever said about a certain person or individual, that is a, such a gracious man, or she's such a gracious lady? That's the root of the word gratitude, isn't it? Many of us would say, well, of course I'm grateful, but sometimes the presence of a prideful, self-serving, complaining spirit reveals an ungrateful heart. Ingratitude poisons your spirit and makes you sour and bitter and edgy. Adrian Rogers said, ungrateful people are always unhappy people. Bob Jones Sr. said, when gratitude dies on the altar of a man's heart, that man is well nigh hopeless. And the reason I'm saying tonight that gratitude has to be the foundation of this mission-focused life is that thank you, just the simple words thank you, are a doorway into proper focus and perspective. There's got to be this ever-present sense of a grateful heart constantly acknowledging what God has done for you. If you don't have this gratitude, if there's not a sense in your, in your heart of, of, of being grateful for the grace of God and the, the forgiveness of sin, then what would compel you to share what God has done? So it's got to be based in this, this gratitude. How about Colossians 2.7, which says, Rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Colossians 3.15, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. So our lives will not be mission focused if we don't happily and frequently acknowledge Jesus. The words, thank you, Lord, ought to fall from our lips, maybe more than any other phrase we utter. Without gratitude, we won't think about him, we won't talk about him, and we won't share him with a lost world. Here's another thought I want to give you before I leave this point. True gratitude always translates into a life offered to God. Tell me if this makes sense. Lord, I want to thank you for saving me. You forgave my sin. You changed my eternal destiny. I want to thank you for what you've done for me. Now leave me alone while I go live my life. That's not real gratitude, is it? Real gratitude says, thank you, Lord, for saving me and for all you've done for me. Now what shall I do for you? Right? True gratitude translates into a life offered to God. So if you want to live a mission-focused life, it must be based in this foundation of gratitude. Word number one is gratitude. Word number two is gospel. Go back to verse 11, please. We didn't read this because it's jumping into the middle of a sentence but I want to go back and pick it up. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, and notice this phrase, which was committed to my trust. In Acts 20, 24, Paul speaks of the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. He speaks in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 of the fact that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. In verse 19 of that chapter, it says God has committed or entrusted to us the word of reconciliation. So Paul was not only keenly aware of what Jesus had done for him, and he was extremely grateful for it, 
but he became consumed and passionate about the gospel that had changed his life and how it could change the lives of others. Paul knew God had given him more than just a free ticket to heaven, but God had given him a task, a ministry, a responsibility. He understood the mission of God to reveal His glory and extend His grace to every kindred, tribe, and tongue. And Paul became passionate for the gospel. In Philippians chapter 1, he speaks of fellowship in the gospel. In verse 5, in verse 12, he speaks of the furtherance of the gospel. In verse 17, the defense of the gospel. In verse 17, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In Romans 15, 20, yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named. In 1 Corinthians, he said, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Paul lived it, ate it, slept it, breathed it. It consumed him, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may I ask you, what message is more important than that? We're saved for the mission of God. We're saved for the proclamation of His gospel and the propagation of His glory to the ends of the earth. Paul often stood for Christ alone, you know. He was persecuted everywhere he went. In 2 Timothy 4.16, referring to standing before Caesar, giving his defense, he said these words, At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I was there alone defending my ministry, defending my preaching of the gospel, defending the passion of my heart to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the places in this world where it hadn't gone. But in verse 17, immediately following the statement that I just read, he says this, Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear. Paul was consumed with the gospel. So it really doesn't matter what others may do. I must live with gratitude for what God has done for me. And I must accept the trust which has been committed to me to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And can I boldly say tonight that if you're not on mission with God, then you're not with God at all. Because that is His activity. If I'm not thankful enough for His reaching into my life and transforming my heart to proclaim the gospel so others can be transformed, I'm not in step with God. We may be involved, and we must be involved, rather, in, in something or some things that have the purpose of spreading the gospel. We can't be deceived into thinking we're following Jesus if we're riding the bench and we're sitting on the sidelines as spectators with no involvement in the mission of God. If you want to live a mission-focused life, it must be based in gratitude and it must become a gospel-focused life. Here's the third word. If you like alliterated outlines, I'm about to blow it. <clears throat> the third word is potential. Potential. Read verse 12 with me, please. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. This is my favorite point in the sermon, by the way. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. The word counted there is an accounting term and it means to credit. I used to work the night shift at a day's end when I was in college and that was back before everything was on computer. So they had a giant ledger book 
And every debited entry had to have a credit entry to balance it out. And part of my job each night was to audit the books and make sure everything was resolved. And I couldn't go home after my, my night shift until I had balanced all the books. Paul is set, telling us here in this verse, God put me in the credit column. Isn't that a great thought? It, it means, it means Paul, Paul says God went ahead and reckoned. That's a good Alabama word. Paul says God reckoned that I would become a preacher of the gospel. He counted me faithful. Listen, God counted Paul faithful before Paul became faithful. God saw Paul's potential before Paul knew it was there. God saw what Paul could be and what he would be, not just what he was. You know, nobody in this room, including myself, would have ever looked at the life of Saul of Tarsus and said, that guy's going to become a great preacher. But listen to me, God saw the potential in the life of Paul. God reckoned that Paul would respond in fervency, with fervency and service to God, just as he had in persecution against the Lord. It's not the only time we get insight into God's knowledge of man's heart. In, in, uh, in John 1.42, when Andrew, Andrew brought Simon Peter to Jesus, he said, Thou art Simon, son of Jonas, but thou shalt be called Cephas. And he was saying the same thing to Peter. I know who you are, and I know who you're going to become. So think about what an honor and what, what grace it is for God to put faith in you. Isn't that remarkable? This young man right here on the third row, brother, could you come and help me? Would you come up here for just a minute? Yeah, you, right there. <clears throat> come right on up here. Thank you. What is your name? Trey. This is Trey. And how old are you? Eleven. Trey is 11 years old. When I say the word potential, what comes to your mind? I brought him up here on purpose because what comes to our mind when we think of the word potential usually is someone who's young, right? Now, you think with me for a minute. What do you think the potential is for God to use this young man right here? Would you say it's unlimited? Yeah, absolutely. I look at a young man like this and I think, and don't get mad at me if you don't like this guy, but I think of somebody like Billy Graham. I know there are were, were differences with his ministry and philosophy, but he preached a clear gospel. I had people in my church that were saved because of him, and there may be thousands or hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of people in heaven because of Billy Graham. wonder what God could do with this young man. And you know why we think he's got potential? Because he's got a lot of years ahead of him, right? And because he doesn't have any of the baggage that we've collected as we've gotten older. We've got a lot of scars. We've got a lot of things we deal with in our hearts. Problems we've been through that, that left us bitter and we had to work our way through the bitterness. And sometimes that rears its ugly head and we, get, we, we have to deal with it all over again. But here's a young man who carries none of that. And, and, a, and there's, a, there's a clean slate, if I could say it. There's a clean slate in this young man's life. And there is no limit to what God could do with this young man. Thank you, buddy. Here's my point. Why, when I say the word potential, do we usually think of someone young, or at least we think of someone else? What about the potential of my life? What about the potential of your life? 
it is so much easier to see it in someone else's life because we think they should be able to overcome whatever faults and weaknesses they may have. They should be able to work through it and let God use them. Well, what about me working through my weaknesses and my faults? Your pastor was telling me about becoming the pastor of this church and how he didn't feel qualified for the task. And I've never met a good man of God who felt qualified for what he's doing, right? Moses didn't feel qualified for what God called him to do either. But why, when we think of the word potential, we think about somebody else? Why don't we think about ourselves? And can we trust God to overcome the weaknesses of our life? Listen, can we trust that God sees in us what we might not see in ourselves? Why is God limited in you? Oh, I got, I got some scars, preacher. I've been through some tough times. Maybe God wants to work through your tough times. Maybe He wants to help you overcome your scars. Maybe He wants to take you like He took, the, took, took Saul of Tarsus and overcome the hatred and the anger and the vitriol and the injurious, persecuting attitude that Paul had. Maybe Saul had. Maybe He wants to work through all of that to make you what He wants you to be. I just finished a reading a book a few, a few days ago on a book written to Christian men. And the writer had this theme all the way through the book. He, he encouraged us to become the soil in which God can plant what He wants me to become. I have potential. I turned 59 years old a few days ago, and I know I don't look it, right? That's where you're supposed to say amen. I turned 59 years old, but you know what? There's still potential for my life. Uh, eight, nine, eight years ago, I was laying in the hospital bed dying with malaria. My heart stopped beating, and people started praying, and some, for some reason, God cho- chose to, to leave me here, and God could have taken me out. And when I came through that experience, one of the lessons I took away, one of the sobering lessons I took away from it was, God must not have been finished with my life. There's still something He wants to accomplish in me and through me. So this is Paul's testimony, and for him it was kind of introspective, it was retrospective, but for us it is instructive. God sees potential in you. So how do I respond to that? How do I respond to the fact that God put faith in me enough that He saved me and He commissioned me to be on mission with Him? Here's, how I, here's, here's what helps me with it. God is always at work in my life. He's always present. He never takes a day off. I know a few people that I spend a little time with them and I need a day off. Do you know what I'm talking about? I told Pastor about this earlier, but somebody gave me a t-shirt for Christmas last year and it says, I like coffee and maybe three people. (laughs) And sometimes when I wear it, my wife says, am I one of them today? (laughs) But listen to me, God is never trying to get away from you. He's always pulling you to Himself. And He wants to work in you. He wants to do a great thing in you and use you far beyond what you could ever think of or imagine. Can we look back at our lives and see His hand as He worked in us? 
Maybe we had parents who encouraged us. Maybe we had a pastor who discipled us and helped us, a friend who encouraged us spiritually. You'd have to be, as my dad, my dad's a preacher, and he's, I've heard him say this many years, you have to be, um, you'd have to have half, a, uh, I'm sorry, I'll write you a letter and tell you what he said when I remember it. No, he said, you've got to be half blind in one eye and can't see out of the other to see what God, not see what God has done for you. We can look back and see what God has done, right? Can we look at the present and see what God is doing today? And then can we look at the future and trust Him for what He wants us to become? Can we, as the writer said, I referred to a few minutes ago, can we become the soil in which God can plant what He wants to see come to fruition? Are we surrendered to His leading now? Are we willing to do what He wants us to do today and then tomorrow and then the day after that and then the day after that? May I tell you that your salvation was not the victorious end of a story of deliverance. It was the glorious beginning of a journey with God on a life He wants, you to, use, wants to use and wants to live through you. We can never stop with joy in our own salvation without considering the purpose for it and what God wants to do through us now. Gratitude and potential and gospel. If you want to live a mission-focused life, Listen to me. You've got to yield your potential to God. Word number four, grace. We're back to the G's if you like that. And verse 14, please. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Look at Paul's description of himself in verse 13. Who was before a blasphemer. That's the same word used in 2 Timothy 3 to describe the rampant evil that will characterize the last days. And it means to speak openly and loudly against God and His people. I believe at the stoning of Stephen, when they laid their clothes, their coats at the, at the feet of a young man named Saul, I don't think Saul was a silent participant. I think he was a blasphemer against God that day. He says here also in verse 13, a persecutor. That means actively pursuing, going out of his way to attack and destroy the church. In Acts 8, 3, he said, I made havoc of the church. In Acts 9, 1, he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter. In Acts 22, verse 4, he said, I persecuted this way into death. In Galatians 1, 13, he said, beyond measure, I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. He also uses the word injurious here which means not just somebody who does wrong to others, but finds joy and pleasure in doing wrong to others. That's, how Paul, that's what Paul knew he was. And the only thing that changed his heart was the grace of God. That's it. Why would God count Paul trustworthy enough to put in the ministry? Because of his grace. And I can imagine when Paul is writing this testimony he is not writing verse 13 without tears in his eyes. Look what I was and look at the grace of God. You know, he uses in verse 13, he uses the word mercy. I obtained mercy. In verse 14, he uses the word grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve and grace is getting what you don't deserve. Paul was aware, very well aware of his own depravity and that made him well aware of the magnitude of God's grace. He never got over it. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he says, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And this grace which was bestowed on me was not in vain. We need to be full of gratitude. 
We need to be gospel consumed. We need to yield our potential to the Lord. And we need to constantly be aware that where I am and what I am and what God wants to do with me is purely because of His grace. If you want a mission-focused life, you must be grace-aware and grace-consumed. In verse 16, we find the fifth word. Let's look at the word pattern. I'm sorry, in verse 16. That in me first, he says in the middle of that verse, Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe. Now, some of us aren't going to like this because we, we think we're saved and we're living our own life and it really doesn't affect anybody else. But the reason God saved Paul was to make him an example. Amen. The reason God saved Paul was so people would look at him and say, if God can do that with him, he can do, do something with anybody. He can do that with anybody. Paul says, God saved me to show the world a wonderful example of His grace. So you agreed with me earlier when I said every conversion is a miracle story. Every saved person is a trophy of God's grace. You agreed with me on that, didn't you? Amen? Here's the rest of that statement. Every person in this room was saved to become a pattern for somebody who's lost. For none of us, Romans 14, 7, none of us liveth to himself. And none of us, or no man dieth to himself. Or whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. And somebody's watching. Yes, Somebody needs to see your life, a life full of gratitude, a life full of gospel proclamation, a life enraptured by the grace of God, a life whose potential has been yielded to the Master and a pattern worthy to follow. Somebody needs to see that in you. If you want a mission-focused life, you're going to have to allow God to use your influence to bring others to Christ. The last words in verse 17. It's the word glory. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The word amen means I believe it. Paul recognized that the real reason for all this was not so we would look at Paul and think highly of him, but the real reason for this testimony is so we will look at God and think highly of him. All of nature shouts glory to God. But listen to me, God is most glorified in the conversion of a soul. In a life that reflects His image and glory back to Him. And God is so passionate for His own glory, He chose to glorify Himself by bringing you into His family. And then using you in the mission to bring others into His family. True gratitude and true grace produces worship. So a mission-focused life is not only full of gratitude and consumed with the gospel and lives with a yielded potential and is enraptured by the grace of God and becomes an influence for others, but a mission-focused life is passionate for God's glory. Can I be very honest with you here? Missions is about way more than just keeping people out of hell. It's about bringing worshipers into the family of God. And I can see here in verse 17, Paul overcome with emotion, maybe stopping and putting down the quill and raising his hands in the air and looking toward heaven and saying, Now unto the King, 
It's him. It's him. It's him. The king, the only king, the authority, the absolute ruler, eternal and immortal, who never grows old and is not subject to decay or change, the only wise God. Amen. I believe this. A mission-focused life has to be passionate for God's glory. So, gratitude, gospel, potential, grace, pattern, and glory. Where has God spoken to your heart tonight? Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the power of Paul's testimony. What an amazing example and life as here we are 2,000 years later looking back at it. We thank you for what you did in Paul's heart and how you used him. But may we not just look at Paul as a super saint in some strange and unusual character that you were able to use. But may we look at our own lives. May we lay this template upon our life and measure our own testimony and our own mission-focused life by this pattern. Lord, where we are weak, where we need to correct, I pray you'll reveal it to us tonight. In Jesus' name. Our heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Would you please stand? The altar is open. The pianist will begin to play. I encourage you, as God has spoken to you tonight, specifically, find a place and kneel and yield that to Him. Lord, whatever you want, wherever you want, for as long as I live, would you pray that with Him, for Him and to Him tonight? You come, please, as God has spoken to you.